0: We read scripture from 1 Peter, the epistle to Peter, the first chapter. Our text is taken from verses 6 and 7. We read the entire chapter. We hear the inspired, infallible word of our God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice, with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. And the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text verses 6 and 7, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter directs us in this chapter to the glorious hope that we have as the people of God. We have been made strangers and pilgrims in this life as those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are citizens, citizens of heaven the children of God, and we await an eternal inheritance. Now this hope and this joy seems dimmed at times because of the struggles and the challenges of our earthly life. Young mothers, young fathers taken from their families, cancer, loss of jobs, financial difficulties, hardships affect many. Abuse, broken relationships, so many are the struggles that we endure in the midst of this life. And in the midst of this life, those struggles would seem to temper and to take away from us that glorious hope that is ours, as the Apostle here is speaking of it. But the Apostle says, no, the saints rejoice greatly in this hope, even though they're in the midst of great persecution. Now it's startling. If we think of the context in which Peter is writing this epistle, the subject of persecution looms large. It's prominent. And likely it was wicked Nero who had come to the throne. And wicked Nero began a policy of persecution that was intense. Christians were slaughtered. And that persecution continued till the time of Constance Constantine in A.D. 3.13. Now Peter views these persecutions and these hardships, which were very real, as in no way diminishing the joy and the hope that Christians have in that blessed inheritance. Persecution is to be expected. Hardships are a reality of life in the midst of this world as a pilgrim, as a stranger. And we know Jesus informed us of the same. He told his disciples, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. The Apostle Paul stated similarly, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22. And then to Timothy, the young pastor, Paul writes, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Faced with that reality, in the midst of this life, the apostle here contrasts two things. On the one hand, the state of the Christians as they live here below. where Christ is not any longer bodily present. And where they are subject to all of these trials and all of these afflictions and all of these struggles. But then in contrast to that, the state of the Christian, as the Christian knows who he is. The marvelous wonder of his salvation. The glory of that inheritance. And lives by hope. What must be our attitude then toward the trials, the struggles, the persecutions, the heaviness that we constantly face? And if not us, that we witness in others. Peter states these trials, these temptations are great heaviness. In no way does he minimize the seriousness. They produce manifold sorrows in our lives. However, in the midst of these sorrows, the child of God rejoices. That's astounding. That God upholds His children. And God not only gives us the grace to endure, but He gives us the grace even to rejoice. To see that He's the one using these sorrows to prepare us for glory. And that through these sorrows, He's testing our faith. In order that that faith might be found approved of one of God's faithful children. We look at this text then under the theme, Rejoicing in heaviness. Noting the meaning, the manner in which that's done, and the purpose. The word rejoicing here, wherein ye greatly rejoice, refers to the intense joy on account of the great hope that God has given us. This word that's used for joy here and rejoicing is the strongest word that we can find in the New Testament. It's the word, for instance, that was used for the Virgin Mary when the angel came to Mary and informed her she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. Luke 1 verse 47 expresses the joy that Mary experienced. This was the longing, the desire of every godly woman in Israel. And now upon her, this lot had fallen. The rejoicing of the child of God, as we're well aware, is due to what the apostle has laid out in the preceding verses. The doctrine of election, the wonder of God's sovereign eternal decree by which God has laid hold upon me, apart from anything of myself, anything of my deserving, and by which God has ordained then that as his child I be one who is preserved and kept unto obedience and to the glory and honor of his name. This is the joy of knowing that Jehovah God has blessed me beyond anything that I could ever expect or deserve. I deserve hell. I deserve to struggle. In the midst of my struggling and challenges, my confession must be, this is what I deserve not only, but even worse. And yet Jehovah God has given His children to know Of this glorious inheritance and this hope. So that the fruit of that wonder in our hearts is exalting God with joy. Greatly rejoicing. A joy not in self, a joy in God. And in the marvelous wonder of what God has done. Now the joy of believers then is not limited to Some time we can get away on vacation or time that we can spend celebrating momentous events, birthdays maybe, anniversaries, other events. This joy is set forth by the Apostle as continual. Scripture often calls believers to that. Constant life of joy and rejoicing. Knowing who I am and what God has done for me inspires me so that the whole of my life is a life. Of thankful praise and joy. Before God. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice evermore. Philippians 4.4 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say. Rejoice. To our shame. We realize. The child of God. Is a joyful person. And the child of God ought to reflect that joy. That gratitude. That thankfulness. The child of God lives out of the wonder of what God has done with regard to his or her salvation. Now that doesn't mean that the child of God does not experience other struggles, challenges, even intense emotions of sorrow. But Peter here is addressing the saints with this language as those who are presently, who are continuously rejoicing with this exceeding joy due to the wonder of their salvation. And that rejoicing is a wonder of grace. It's remarkable. It surpasses understanding. This is the wonder work that God has performed in the hearts of His children as they know Him as Jehovah, their Lord and their Savior. Now this joy the Apostle sets forth here in the midst of heaviness. And that's the contrast we have here. By stating that they're rejoicing, Paul is in no way minimizing the severe nature of their pain and suffering. They're in heaviness. They're in the midst of struggles as pilgrims and strangers. Now that word heaviness is intended to be contrasted with that exceeding joy. So that with the exceeding nature of that joy is also the depths of the burden Of this heaviness. This heaviness is real. This heaviness is intense. And the intention, again, is to contrast with the same intensity. Just as there is that exceeding joy, so is that difficult and exceeding hardship. The things of life weigh heavy on us, and there is sorrow, there's sadness. Now that heaviness comes from, we could say, at least three different aspects of our life. First of all, it comes from heaviness that's brought on by others. And that often is the emphasis throughout Peter's epistle. Others treating us poorly. We being the brunt of mockery, ridicule, being bullied. So that others treat us in a very serious and a very bad manner. So that that creates heaviness brought on by others. But secondly, it comes from a heaviness that is due to our own sin, our own indiscretion. We sin. We walk in a manner that is ungodly, and as a result, there's consequences to that sin. And there's shame, there's guilt, there's a heaviness that comes as a result of that sin in which we wander. But then finally, we understand that this heaviness at times comes directly From God. God sends strokes. He sends cancer. He sends heart attacks. God is the one that causes car crashes and all kinds of events in our lives that directly affect our walk and our life here below. And the result is intense heaviness. He reminds us your citizenship is not here below, it's heavenly. He reminds us, you're not to be at home here below. This is not where you are to abide. And the result then is as we reckon with the reality, there are struggles and heaviness. As we live in the midst of this sinful life, and as we experience these troubles and these trials, and as God reminds us, we're passing through. This isn't our home. But He's bringing us somewhere somewhere. That is far more glorious. Now, this seems contradictory. How is it that the Christian, on the one hand, is exceedingly joyful, but on the other hand, is experiencing great heaviness? And that's the marvel, that's the wonder of God's work of grace in the lives of His children. Only a Christian is able to experience this wonder. Only a Christian can rejoice. In the midst of temptation, only a Christian can be at peace with God's heavy hand upon him at times. Only a child of God is able to know the wonder of God's everlasting arms upholding him or her in the midst of the heaviness of affliction. This is the work of Christ and it's the work of Christ's spirit in us. Think of Jesus. Jesus experienced the joy of the resurrection only in the way of the sorrow of the garden. An intense sorrow that moved him to sweat droplets of blood. He had to experience the horror of the cross. The three hours of darkness and the intense wrath of God poured out upon him for all the sins of his people. And while Jesus experienced that great heaviness, he could at the same time rejoice in the fact that he was doing the will of his Father. He was doing the work for which Jehovah God had sent him. And Christ saw the sorrow, the heaviness as necessary for the fullness of the joy that God was working in and through him. Such is the experience by God's grace of the child of God in the midst of this life. The child of God knows the joy of salvation, but also the sorrow and the heaviness of sin. The shame, the guilt of that sin. And he sees God's sovereign hand leading and guiding his life in such a way that it's working all together for good. And he believes that. By the faith that God works in his heart. Now how is that evident in our lives? A loved one dies. Sometimes taken abruptly from our lives. And there's heaviness. We weep with deep sorrow. Earthly ties are broken. And there's a depth of grief there that involves this intense heaviness. But at the same time, We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We rejoice in the wonder of the victory that God has given to our loved one who has died in Christ. And there's a joy then as we confess the wonder that they now have been translated into everlasting glory and bliss with their Savior. An intense sorrow, but at the same time, a joy and a hope that's unspeakable so that the faithful children of God are not emotionless they're touched by sorrow they're afraid of danger they're hurt by poverty they're touched personally by the unbearable character of persecution and they suffer because of their sin but that sorrow and that suffering does not prevent joy That suffering gives occasion for that joy. How? It directs us to Christ. It turns us away from the things of this life. Away from our own weakness, our own sin. It directs our joy to the wonder of our Savior and what He has done for us. Sorrow kindles and works joy as it's directed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the believer is weak. Sinful, prone to temptation. At the same time, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, He's strong, He's holy, He's victorious over temptation. And that's the wonder, is it not? Of the struggle between the old man of sin and that new man that's in Jesus Christ. A struggle that's intense. A struggle that continues until we are translated to glory. When we experience then the sorrows of this life, God causes the joy of that inheritance to intensify. He causes us to see more fully the wonder of that salvation, the hope that is ours in it, and the lasting character and nature of it. God directs us to the wonder of His goodness and His grace in Jesus Christ alone. And rather than trusting in ourselves, rather than entrusting trusting in the things of this life, we lean on Him. We lean on His Word. And we lean on His promises. And the Spirit strengthens us in the knowledge and the awareness of that joy. We rise above the trials not only, but God even works in us to make those trials an occasion for joy. We look back and we see How God marvelously was at work. He hadn't forsaken me. He wasn't leaving me. But He was using that to work a good in my life that could never have been accomplished in any other way. And so the faithful endure heaviness willingly. As the Apostle says here. The ungodly, they murmur. They strive against God. They battle against God. They clash with His will. They refuse to accept the things that He sends in their lives. And constantly they're at battle. They don't know peace. But the believer, by God's grace, is conformed to the will of Jehovah God. The believer bears sorrow and knows contentment and peace. As a tame horse submits to saddle and bridle, so the child of God submits to that sorrow and that affliction. Now it would be foolish to say we enjoy it. We delight in it. But we submit to it. And the greatest desire of the believer is not my will, thy will be done. That my will be conformed to the will of my Heavenly Father. And that more and more I live in a manner that reflects that confession The faithful here are commended by the Apostle Peter because they undergo that sorrow willingly. Not as being forced. Not as of necessity. And again, why is that? The child of God knows I deserve everlasting punishment in hell. I deserve to perish everlastingly. The sorrow, the persecution, the struggles of this life cannot begin to compare To what I deserve. And even more cannot begin to compare to the glory that awaits. And so what is the manner of this heaviness and this rejoicing? The apostle says in manifold temptations. And we're introduced here to the concepts of temptations and trials. The words that are used throughout the passage. Verses 6 and 7. For temptation and trial are one and the same in the Greek. It's important in the context to figure out, is the apostle here speaking of a trial or a temptation? Now important it is for us to think about that for a moment and to distinguish the two. With regard to trials and temptations, we say that the devil is always the one who is the tempter. God makes clear in James 1 verse 13 that he does not tempt. It's the devil who tempts. What then is a temptation? A temptation is motivated by the devil. Its motivation is hatred because the devil hates God and hates the truth. The devil always brings the lie. Temptations come to all men and the devil's goal is to bring those individuals down to destruction with him. On the contrast, a trial comes from God. It's directed only to those who are the objects of God's love because that which motivates a trial is God's love. Trials involve the truth and God is using them to build His saints up and to strengthen them in order that they might abound in His Word and in His service. Now with regard to temptations and trials, even though temptations come from the devil, trials from God, we know that God is sovereign over all of them. Jehovah God rules. And He's the one who directs all for the good of His church and for the glory of His name. And that's especially evident in the life of Job. God was sovereignly directing everything that took place in the life of Job. And there we see this too, that the same circumstance can involve both a trial and a temptation. So that the same situation, the fact that Job has all of his possessions taken from him and then is robbed of his health is being used by the devil as a temptation to get him to deny God. Whereas God is using it as a trial to test his faith. So that Jehovah God is sovereign and God is the one directing the devil, limiting the temptations because God knows what is precisely necessary for his children. God sovereignly in charge of it all and Jehovah God using the same situation at times to be both a temptation and a trial. If we think about it, as students, you're doing a test perhaps in your classroom and you're tempted to cheat. To look at your neighbor's paper. The devil is tempting you. Just look, cheat. It's no big deal. You can steal the answer. That's all right. Whereas God is testing you. What are you going to do in that situation? Will you trust him? Will you obey him? Or will you give in to the temptation? So that the very same situation is both from the devil, a temptation from Jehovah God, a trial of our faith. Now, the apostle here is speaking then of those temptations that are coming from the devil that are intense, That involve every different aspect of our lives. As God now is using them in our lives as trials. And that's why the text speaks of manifold temptations in verse 6. And then it talks in verse 7 about the trial of your faith. Those temptations coming from the devil are sovereignly ordained by God. As trials in love of the faith of his children. And God is doing so then in love. Now, these temptations, these trials, are manifold. That involves every single manner and form of temptation that men and women, children, young people can think of. And through this epistle, we find a mirror into those manifold temptations the dark shadows that were upon God's people and the suffering that was intensifying as these scattered saints faced all of these various struggles. They were tempted by the devil, buffeted for their doing well. They were doing what's right, and they were mocked and ridiculed for that. They were reviled. They were suffering. They faced a loss of possessions, a loss of friendships, a loss of relationships, They were exposed to railing and to terror. They were evil spoken of. They were tried as in a fiery trial. The apostle speaks of. Even goes so far as to say they were partakers of Christ's sufferings. The sufferings that Jesus endured while on this life came upon them as those who were the visible representatives of Jesus Christ. They were reproached for the name of Christ. And they suffered... As a Christian, according to chapter 4, verse 16, which meant loss of business, loss of income at times, loss of name, loss of their homes, desertion by their parents, forsaken of their children, forsaken of friends, misrepresented, hated, and even killed because of what they stood for and what they believed. So intense was their suffering so that the new convert became... The target. And he became that target. For every weapon of the devil hurled toward him from every quarter. Now what do those temptations result in? Those temptations result in shame. In reproach. Loss of possessions. Loss of all of these things. Loss of liberty. Loss of freedom. Even imprisonment and death. And so all of these struggles now are coming upon the people of God. Now specifically, the temptations of which the Apostle here is speaking in the context here are those that would entice us to be citizens of this world instead of seeking our citizenship as a heavenly citizenship. The pressures are great to cave into the things of this world and this life. Give in to the path of sin and wickedness. Take the broad way. Don't be committed to that narrow way. The temptations are intense to live in a manner that compromises the truth. In a manner that compromises godly living. Living, so to speak, with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Seeking to love God and mammon. Now this heaviness is modified in two ways in our text. First, the temptations we read in verse 6 are now for a season. The saints here are assured that the suffering and the heaviness that they are currently experiencing is not only limited as to time, but also as to its severity. Now for a season. And the point is this, God is not constantly threshing, but there comes also the time to reap. The time of joy. Temptations as severe as they may be. Are limited by God. For the good of his church. We think of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. The important truth that. There hath no temptation taken you. But such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted. Above that ye are able. But will with the temptation. Make a way of escape. Jehovah God. God sovereignly ruling the temptations in love for his children and doing so in such a way that they are now for a season. As severe as they seem, there's an end. And we think of the apostle emphasizing again the heaviness, the sorrows now for a time not beginning to be compared to the glory that awaits God even promises that as the end gets closer, he'll shorten the days. We read of that in Revelation, Matthew 24. The fact that the intense persecution at the end will be such, but God will even, for the sake of his elect, shorten those days. Whatever that would mean in terms of God looking out for his children and making sure that they are kept and they are safe. We think of the psalmist. The weeping may tarry for a few hours, but then the joy breaks. Now for a season. And the importance of that is that the sorrow we experience is not without hope. There's an end. The suffering is a means to a far more glorious end that God has ordained. And so the faith of the child of God, will outlive the temptations and the trials that we experience here below. Wood, even gold and silver, will not outlast the forces of decay. That's all left behind. But there is that which God has placed in the hearts of His children that cannot be destroyed. And the temptations, the trials, the afflictions of this life, the sorrow... Even death, nothing can outlast it because Jehovah God, the eternal God, has given to us that which will be preserved to all eternity as an everlasting joy. That new life that's in Christ is kept and preserved so that our temptations are temporary in terms of the eternal covenant of grace that is ours with Jehovah God. But secondly, the apostle also speaks in verse six, if need be another beautiful qualification here, if need be, what does that impress upon us? Everything that you and I experience is ordained by our heavenly father as necessary. Every temptation, every trial has a specific purpose. Now that phrase, if need be, is a conditional statement, but it's one in which the statement is assumed true. And the point is this, temptations are not random, nor are they by chance. They're from your heavenly Father, out of necessity. Although the devil is tempting, God is overruling, he's controlling all the events of this world for the preservation and the salvation of his children And the glory and honor of His name. If need be. God knows precisely what you need. What I need. In order to prepare us for our place in glory. And God sends it our way for our good. Never will God send us temptations or trials that are unnecessary. That are needless. Always. There's a purpose. And again, that's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. God is the one who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. There's nothing harder than suffering something that's aimless, something that has no purpose. And we've been there. We've had to suffer for things that in our estimation were not our fault. It seemed purposeless. Our parents perhaps disciplined us wrongly. Or perhaps it was a teacher or another situation. But beloved, when we understand that our suffering is ordained by our Heavenly Father. With the purpose of achieving a positive end result that He's working in and through us. There's a new interest. In the monotony of our daily life. We see God's hand. And we pray for the grace. Always to see God's hand. Not to see that person. Not to see that enemy. To see the hand of my heavenly Father. As he directs all these things for my good. We don't look at our trials as punishment. For past things that I might have done. It's easy for us to think that way. Something comes upon us and just like Joseph's brothers, we begin to think God is punishing us because we sold Joseph. That wasn't the case. Jehovah God has taken all the punishment that we deserve and He placed it on His own Son, Jesus Christ. So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Each trial is pointing ahead. It's not due to things that have occurred in the past. It's pointing ahead. And it has an intent to make us partakers of this glorious inheritance and the holiness and the obedience that He's working in us as the positive fruit of His grace. Now the very fact that it's a trial proves that This wonder, that which is tried, is deemed precious. One doesn't take a piece of rock in which there's no possibility of ore and subject it to testing and to refinery. One takes only a piece of rock that he deems is already valuable, that has some value in it, and subjects that now to the intense preparation that's required of refinement. What is so precious? Beloved, you and I are precious because we are the children of the divine creator of heaven and earth. The one who has taken us as his elect children to be his own. Who has pledged Himself to be our Father. And who loves us with an everlasting love. And will bring us to the glory that awaits. And so as we go through this life, so easy it is for us to focus on everything that others are doing against us. Rather, beloved, we focus on what Jehovah God has done for us. We focus on what Jehovah God is doing in us. And we stand in awe of the wonder of His sovereign goodness and love by which He has set His love upon me and chosen me by which He's plucked me out of the darkness and death that I deserve and is bringing me into the fullness of this glorious inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for me who is being kept by God And by his power. God uses these temptations, these trials. For the good of his children. And he talks then in verse 7. That the trial of our faith. Being much more precious than of gold. Might be found unto praise and honor and glory. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now the significance of that has to do with this. That. The word translated trial there has a little bit different meaning than what our translation here gives it. Rather than directly referring to the testing, the trial of our faith, the idea is the tried character of our faith. That is the end result. It's the picture of a refiner who's begun to melt down the ore and now he sees the finished result. There's gold floating on the top. And that's... The final goal for which he's labored. So that the idea here is of a man or a woman whose faith has been tested and tried and proven. Now we know that's nothing of ourselves. That's all a wonder of God's grace. God spoke of this way, for instance, with regard to Abraham. According to Hebrews 11, verse 17. That God tested him and he was found approved of God. And so our faith is constantly being tested and found approved according to God's marvelous work of grace. Now, also there are times when we fail. But the reference here is to active faith, which is a fruit of the gift of faith. In that regard, it's important for us to understand when we talk about faith, there's always three things that we can be talking about. First of all, there's faith as it's viewed In terms of the bond that unites us to Christ. The essence of faith. That's a gift from God. It has nothing to do with us. We are completely passive in regards to its gift. But Jehovah God, apart from our works, apart from anything of ourselves, gives to us the gift of faith by which we're grafted into Christ. That's the way Lord's Day 7 talks about faith in terms of the grafting. But then secondly, we can talk about faith in terms of its object. The Word of God. We talk about the fact that Faith, it's the object of our believing. We speak of the content of our faith. For instance, the faith of our fathers. We're talking there about the doctrines, the truths, the confessions that they held dear. But then there's the third aspect that we can talk about faith. And that is the fruit of that bond that unites us to Christ. Faith shows itself in activity. And again, Lord's Day 7 talks about The knowledge and the confidence that flows out of that bond by which we're united to Christ. That activity of faith is such that we lay hold on Christ. We trust in Him. We grow in our knowledge and appreciation for His wondrous works. We grow in our confidence so that increasingly throughout our lives that faith is evident and it shines forth. Now with regard to the text here, it's talking about the activity of our faith. With regard to that bond, it's always the same. With regard to the content of our faith, that too is always the same. But the activity of our faith is that which fluctuates. And the Bible then talks in terms of one whose faith is faltering, or one whose faith is weak, or one who's strengthened with regard to his faith. Although the bond is always the same, the object, God's word and promises is always the same. Never can be broken. We understand that the activity of that faith is that which is tested and that which at times changes and fluctuates as we go through our lives. The temptations, the trials that come our way test that faith. Challenge our commitment to live lives of obedience and godliness and to live out of Christ. And God, through His work of grace, demonstrates that that faith is true by the tried character of it. Now that's a wonder again of His grace. Apart from God and His work of grace, our faith always would fail. But because of that bond, we cannot and we will not fall away. Though we fall, we will not be cast off. Because Jehovah God is faithful. Gold, when purified, is tried twice by fire. First, when it's separated from the dross. And then second, when a judgment is made regarding its purity. And that's the idea here. The Bible talks about our faith tried like silver or gold. Psalm 66, verse 10. For thou art a God who has proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. First, Separated from the evil of this world. Consecrated to God. And secondly, those trials reveal then a faith that is genuine, that is true. Now what is God's purpose in leading His children through these manifold sorrows? Which are tempered with unspeakable joy. That we might be found unto the praise and honor and glory. Of God, God is working a fruit in the lives of His children, and He's working a product that is far more precious than gold or silver. The activity of our own faith has no value; it has no honor of itself. It needs to be refined, it needs to be purified, and crowned then by God. And so Jesus Christ, by means of His Spirit, perfects; He molds that faith of the sinner, so that that sinner puts his or her trust in Jehovah God. That gold is separated from the rest of the impurities. Our walk in our life is to be separated from sin. Consecrated to God. And as we experience the pain and the suffering of trials and temptations, God produces something more precious than gold. A faith that's been tested. A faith that's been proven. You've suffered pain. You've suffered loss and anguish. God has taken from us loved ones. He causes us heartache through the loss of friends and family members and relationships. Repeatedly at times, we're mocked and we're ridiculed. Sometimes from fellow workers because of our faith. Sometimes from family members. There's times when we've had to break up relationships because of the truth. As we live in the midst of this world, As strangers and pilgrims, we know that our hope is above. And we have something more precious than gold or anything this world has to offer. We have a faith that has been gifted to us by God, which God has now tested and which God is proving in order that it might show forth His glory and His honor. A faith that's developing and growing. In our knowledge and commitment to God. Gold is going to pass away. All our possessions will pass away. But God will preserve that glorious wonder unto all eternity. That our approved faith, the apostle says, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory of Jehovah God. Now what a wonder. And Peter knew the wonder of this. Peter knew how weak his faith was. How prone he was to fail. How quick he was to deny it. And we know how weak our faith is. We know that we can't trust in ourselves. We can't lean on that faith. Our trials at times seem so difficult. We are so prone to give in. But this faith is not our work. This is God's work. This is a wonder of His grace. And this faith will be To the glory and to the honor of God, because it's God's power operating in our lives. This faith is the means God is powerfully using to preserve His children to the end. And by faith, then, we submit to God's will not only to endure it, we not only choose suffering at times over against the wide path that leads to destruction. But more than that, we rejoice in it because we know this is the way of glory to God, our faithful heavenly father, so that our joy in heaviness comes from especially two things. First of all, we understand the meaning and the significance of our trials ordained by Jehovah God in his fatherly love for our good. And secondly, Jehovah God is working love. He's working faith in Jesus Christ through those trials. So that when all the other joys of life are eliminated by earthly sorrow, we're eventually driven to see that one thing have I desired, and that do I seek after, to dwell in the house of my God forever. Jehovah God, working that wonder in our lives through heaviness, which is also reflecting intense joy in our lives. May God work that wonder, and may God preserve and keep us for His glory. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the wonder of Thy grace and Thy work in our lives. For the blessed assurance that Thou art the one from eternity, having chosen us as Thine elect, preserving and keeping us by the power of the Spirit unto that wondrous joy that is ours in glory. Now for a time tested, tried as with fire, but grant us the grace to endure heaviness, That we might more and more be conformed to the image of thy beloved Son. And that we might live for the glory and honor of his name. Amen.